Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Live Wire podcast. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, coming to you this week from Tampa, Florida. Now, the radio show, the Live Wire radio show, which you may be hearing on your finer public radio stations, that was, of course, recorded in Portland, Oregon, where we do that kind of thing. But as I'm recording this bit of uh, new material for the podcast version of the show, I am, in fact, in Tampa. And I'm sorry about the noise in the background. Uh, that is me trying to steam up the shower and let some of the wrinkles out of my uh, suit that I have to wear for this little video project I'm doing tomorrow. I just realized as I said that, what a bad idea uh, it is the way that I'm trying to get the wrinkles out of my suit. Particularly on this week of all weeks, our theme on the show is uh-oh. And the reason we came up with that theme is because one of our guests... Paolo Bacigalupi. He is a writer. He has written a piece of uh, near-future fiction, a book called The Water Knife, and it's about how uh, the, uh, the, the southwest of the United States would not be okay if the Colorado River uh, loses some of its oomph, if you will. If there was a huge drought and the levels of the Colorado River went down even further than they've been uh, in the last few years and what that would actually do. And here I am Wasting water. You know what? I'm going to just take a second. I'm going to run and I'm going to turn the shower off. I now feel I feel deeply guilty about this. Okay, just stay there, listeners. Okay, way better. Now I can relax and focus on the rest of this podcast, uh, which uh, along with uh, Paolo Bacigalupi features our friend Ijioma Aluo, who is a writer. Uh, she's going to tell us about a lot of things, including ways that we can all try to keep it civil when we're online and talking to each other and commenting on various matters of politics and the like. I mean, there's got to be a way, right, that we can make the Internet a little bit less of an angry place. So we're going to get into that with her. Oh, and we have writer Sally Tisdale on the show. She's got a great new uh, book of collected essays out called Violation, and uh, she is going to talk to us about the dangers of writing about your own family. Uh, so you're going to hear that. Uh, also, I can't believe I almost forgot, one of the highlights of the show, we have music from Liz Weiss. Liz Weiss is an incredible singer from Portland. She had the whole crowd up uh, hugging, swaying, clapping, uh, getting to know uh, strangers. I mean, really, this was it was a kind of an incredible uh, moment when Liz Weiss was singing. I'll tell you about that when we get towards the end of the show because... Uh, the radio broadcast version of the program, we only were able to include one Liz Weiss song, but because this is the podcast and because ones and zeros are cheap, that's a um, binary reference. That's that's the extent of my understanding of computer programming and or digital storage is that it's ones and zeros, I think. Uh, but those are cheap, and so we can put as much content as we as we want to, and we want to include this uh, other Liz Weiss song and a, a chat we had with her as well. So that is all coming up. The other things that will be happening, I'll be jumping in and out of the show, reading some of the emails that you've sent in this week, and also even playing a voicemail, which may or may not have been left for our show. I mean, it was definitely left for our show, but it may or may not have been intended for our show. Uh, so we'll play that. Hey, if you would ever like to uh, email me, with any thoughts on the show, things we could do better, things that you thought were fun, observations, reflections, um, anything that strikes your fancy, go ahead and send an email to heyluke at livewireradio.org. That's heyluke 
at livewireradio.org, and uh, we may read it during the show. Or you can leave us a voicemail message. The number is 803-597-2346. 803-597-2346. That's a weird string of numbers, Luke, you might say, but that's because it spells out 803-LW-RADIO. 803-LIVE-WIRE-RADIO, but just the L and just the W. Now I've made it probably a little more confusing than it needs to be. All right, so that is the plan for this episode of the LiveWire podcast. Uh, Let's get it started without further ado. Take a listen to this. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... LiveWire! Recorded in front of a live audience in Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon, it's LiveWire with writers Paolo Becigalupi, Sally Tisdale, and Ichioma Oluo with music from Liz Weiss and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of LiveWire, Luke, mistakes were made, Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here to Mississippi Studios here in Portland, Oregon. We have... A very interesting hour of radio for you. Our theme is, uh uh-oh. We're going to be focusing on that moment when you realize that things are not going according to the plan. I was uh, getting on the airplane this morning uh, up in the town that I live in, which is called Bellingham, Washington. It's way up in the northwest corner of the United States. And we were loading onto the thing, and a very confused guy walked up to the counter. He was holding his ticket, and he said, what time is the flight for Seattle leaving. And we were all flying to Portland, and the gate agent said, "Uh, that flight left like a half hour ago. And the guy said, but I've been sitting here the whole time. She said, yeah, it left from the other gate at the other end of the airport, which is my worst nightmare when I'm waiting for the plane. I keep like obsessively checking to make sure that I'm not doing what that guy did this morning because I have done worse in my life, which is I have been standing at the gate watching people load on the airplane and still missed the flight. (laughs) It was in Omaha, Nebraska. And I think part of the problem was while I was watching everyone load onto the plane I was also supposed to be on, I was on the phone with my divorce attorney. I don't know if you have been divorced or if you've had occasion to talk to a divorce attorney but I feel like the only rational reaction to that kind of conversation is to astrally project yourself out of your body and hover somewhere above the building that you're in, which is apparently what I did because I started talking to him, people were boarding the plane, and then I looked up and the doors were closed and the plane was leaving the Omaha airspace. (laughs) So I don't know what happened. I went into a wormhole of some kind, but it it was not great. Air passenger performance on my part. I have to say, the divorce that I was discussing with this attorney was itself the product of a series of kind of uh oh moments. I mean, any breakup of a relationship is is the result of a whole bunch of different moments, but there was one in particular that is very vivid in my mind, and it was in 2006. And um, at the time, my job was that I was a fill-in reporter for NPR. So what I would do is I would go to different cities where the reporter that was stationed there, if they were on vacation or if they were on maternity leave or something, I would fill in for them. And it meant I was gone all the time. I was gone for almost a year straight. And it was 
really not great for my marriage. And I kept saying to my ex-wife, look, we'll just, we'll get this figured out. We'll, I'm going to get back to L.A. We're going to spend some time together. Everything's going to be okay. And this was as Valentine's Day was approaching. And so we decided we were going to make this big meal at home as like a Valentine's celebration. And as things were falling apart in the relationship, I kept saying, like, but this, this dinner is going to be great, isn't it? And eventually it became like more and more importance was piled on this meal till it became like the dinner that was going to save our marriage, <laughs> which was a lot of pressure. So it's the day of this meal, and I'm on the phone with my ex-wife. She's at the store. She's buying all the stuff for the meal. And I get a call on the other line, and I say, uh-oh, because it's a 202 number. It's my boss is in D.C., and I take the call, and my boss says, Dick Cheney just shot someone in the face. <laughs> and we need you to go to Corpus Christi, Texas, right this minute. And I, I like, took the phone off of my ear, and I just looked at it. Because, and there were two names on the phone, because there was my ex-wife who was holding, and there was my boss in D.C. And I was looking at the phone because I realized that if I took this gig, that was going to be the end of the marriage. And I thought about it for like five seconds. No, no, in the way that you know, you know how your life flashes before your eyes. This was like my marriage flash before my eyes. I cycled through the whole thing. And I, I made my decision. And I picked up the phone. And I said, all right, put me on the next flight. And that marriage, as you might be surprised to hear, did in fact end, right? Which is not the moral of the story. That was probably not a bad decision. Uh, I'm super happy in my life now. My ex-wife is extremely happy. We are friends. We still talk. The reason I'm telling you this story is because I would like my first marriage to be officially added to the list of things that Dick Cheney destroyed. <laughs> Just wanted that in the official record, and now we can keep going with the show. That's all I wanted. All right. Our theme this week is uh-oh, because life never goes as planned, right? We're all figuring things out on the fly, and when Sally Tisdale comes up against something that she doesn't understand, she tends to write about it, whether that thing is eels, obscene phone calls, birth, death, or even elephant sex. It's all covered in her new book, Violation, which spans 25 years and brings together incredible essays she's written for Harper's, The New Yorker, and a bunch of other places. Please welcome Sally Tisdale to Livewire. <laughs> Sally, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I was reading uh, this book, Violation, which is a collection of essays, and it's, it's really good, by the way. Uh, I, I was reading in the introduction, you said that your writer's voice found you. How would you describe what your writer's voice exactly is? It's very hard to describe a voice, uh, but I recognize my voice, and I recognize other people's authorial voices, and I've tried to change it, and it it's very sure of itself. It doesn't want to change. But over time, it does. You know, I can go back. This was 25 years, 30, actually more like 30 years worth of work. And I can see what's the same, and I can see what's different. And it, it just matures and grows. But, yeah, I would say quirky and, and kind of unpredictable. I get a lot of editorial comments, you know. And back in the old days, when they actually wrote on a manuscript, and you would get red, red pencil and all of that, I would often get 
repeat, um, query, query, do you really want to do this? And, and I would write back stat, 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 which means yes, keep it. Or OA, which is on author, and we would just have these conversations. Does on author mean like if this doesn't go well, this is on me? It's on me. If the fact's on me, the voice is on me, the fact that it's an incomplete sentence is on me, it's all on me. You, you write uh, in one of the early essays about your mother, and you write about how you guys were not as close as you maybe wanted to be, and she wasn't, as you describe her, as, as warm of a person as you could have hoped she would, would have been. Was that hard for you to write? Because you're kind of committing it to the permanent record when you say that. You know, I wrote that essay um, when she was dying, and uh, right after she died. She died when I was really quite young. Uh, and I don't know how many, how, ma how many people have exactly the relationship with their mother that they want to have. Mothers are either a little too close or a little too far away. And I say that as a mother, a mother of three. Uh, so, I, you know, I think we can all argue with that, with, with our relationship with our parents. We can all make a story out of it. But did you, did you sort of think long and hard before you wrote about that part of your life? Because you have, you know, there's other people in the family. They see this. And yeah. You're saying, you know, hey, our, our mom or my mom was not, a, was not a super warm person. I mean, that's in a book now that's on shelves that people are buying. That doesn't well, stress you out? And this is the title of the book, Violation, comes from a, a time when my sister wrote me an email saying, don't ever use my name in an essay or a book again. Um, after one of my books came out, and, and it was a memoir that partly was about our childhood, and my sister said, don't ever use my name again. And so, yeah, I had to think a little bit about that. But I can't do what I do and not write about living people. So the essay violation is really about that question, what do we have the right to do? What's fair? What's decent? What's true? Because I learned pretty early on that everybody has their own version of what's true, right. especially about your childhood. And of course, it was not very long after that she wrote me that email, maybe a couple of years later. She's like, how come you never write about me? <laughs> and for the most part, my family just doesn't read the books. They just don't pay attention. Is that a relief to you? You're never, you're never a star in your own family. No. So, you know, it's just not that, it's not that exciting to them. I, um, <laughs> I once had the bizarre honor of throwing out the first pitch at a major league baseball game. Oh my God. And my mom I'm was so jealous. I, I believe me, it was, uh, it was pretty exciting. And my mom wasn't going to come because she, her job was selling samples at Costco and she, she was on the work. pierogies, which she said breaking the station <laughs> down was a whole thing. <laughs> and I had to say, this is really important this for me to come watch this. So she got someone to cover for her at the pierogi station. Oh, man. To your point that you're never a star in your you're own family. <laughs> no. My, I don't, you know, my father said he didn't have time to read. He was too busy, so he, he never read any of my books. And that's, sometimes that's a tragedy, and sometimes that's a farce. Uh, we're talking to Sally Tisdale here on Livewire Radio. She has a new book out. It's called Violation. It's a number of essays that were written, uh, some of them for other publications. And one of them that fascinated me was the... Uh, the history of elephants in Portland, and that for a period of time, Portland was like the only place that could get elephants to breed in captivity. What was going on? I felt like I was given the keys to the kingdom, man. I got an assignment from the New Yorker to write about elephant breeding at the Oregon Zoo, and I got to go behind the door. And that was something I'd wanted to do for so long, to get up close and personal with elephants. It was the best six months. 
Why were they able to get elephants to breed here in Portland when, like, the San Diego Zoo was having trouble and nobody else could seem to do it? Well, part of it is because they have this fantastic thing that has a terrible name called the crush. It's a room that gets smaller and fits just tightly around the elephant. It does not hurt them at all. But that way they could have bull elephants, which are extremely dangerous. So you have to have a bull. That's the first thing you I see. Need. You need a male elephant yeah, you there. You need a male elephant. So that was the first elephants. thing. And they had multiple bull elephants. And they had the crush, and they had very committed keepers, and they had this fantastic scientist named Betts Rasmussen, who was determined to find the elephant breeding pheromone. And that's what I really got to, to study, was her search for the breeding pheromone. It was just a great story and a great assignment. And then because I made friends with the keepers, I got to go back later when one of the elephants was, was laboring to give birth and watch the labor. And that was just, I just felt like that was one of the highlights of my life story. So, yeah. You, you talk about how similar elephants are to humans in a lot of oh. ways. Do they do lamas when they're <laughs> laboring? Actually, the, the, the cow in labor is attended by the other cows, and they seem very sympathetic. And they touch the sides of the abdomen and, and huddle around her. And, yeah, it seemed actually very familiar. You also write that elephants don't want to mate in front of humans. They want to find somewhere kind of private, which is decent of them. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, and the keepers are decent enough to give them that. Wow. I appreciate that. Um, hold on, Sally. We've got to take a short break here on Livewire. We've got Sally Tisdale here. The book is Violation. We will be right back with more. Coming to you from PRI and Portland, Oregon. Stay with us. All right, it's Luke again. Still here in Tampa. You know, it was... I'm not actually sure why I decided to hang my suit up in the shower area and try to steam it out. It is, it's humid enough, even though we're only in the month of April. It's still humid enough down here that I probably could have just put it outside and would have done the same thing. Anyway, look, I learned my lesson. Will you guys please stop riding me about this? I'll never do it again. Um, I want to tell you about a fine, fine sponsor we have here on Livewire Radio, and that is Ergo Depot. Ergo Depot would like you to meet your newest active office coworker, Jarvis. The new stand-up desk from Ergo Depot. Jarvis is the last desk you'll ever buy. That's right, because once you buy yourself a Jarvis, you will not need or want anything else. How do I know? Well, I use a version of the Jarvis desk when I am doing the Livewire radio program. And what's so cool about it is that I can adjust the height uh, to be standing, to be sitting, and even to be in a weird crouch if I so choose. And I can also have preset heights. It has a memory on it, that thing does, and so it'll, you can tell it position number one, position number two, position number three, and it'll go right to where you have uh, told it to go in the past. It is an amazing thing, uh, the that Jarvis desk, and the whole line are available over at Ergo Depot, who makes furniture that flows with you and your business throughout the day, standing, seated, and all the positions in between. Check out their website at ergodepot.com. Also, huge thanks to Ergo Depot for outfitting the Livewire offices down there in Portland, Oregon. I don't have a desk at the Livewire offices. It's okay. It's, you know, I'm only there a couple of days a week. That's fair, I guess. But when I walk in there and I see all of those uh, amazing Ergo Depot products that they have uh, for, their, uh, for their use, I am filled with jealousy and a little bit of rage, which I'm working on through therapy. Anyway, if you would like to have the cool work environment that the Livewire offices have, go to ErgoDepot.com. All right, 
Coming up, we've still got Sally Tisdale, Egioma Aluo, music from Liz Vice, and also a chat with Paolo Bacigalupi. It is our uh-oh episode of Livewire. This is the Livewire podcast. We've also got some of your emails and a voicemail to play as well. All right, let's get it rolling again. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you from Mississippi Studios here in Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank. We have Sally Tisdale here, by the way. Her book of essays is called Violation. You write, I think, very eloquently about your relationship with your weight and how there was a period of your life where you were secretly taking uh, diet pills uh, because you thought you needed to be a certain weight, I guess, to be happy. How did that work out for you? That did not work out. I was pretty young, um, and I don't think anybody should be surprised that we feel like we're supposed to be a certain weight, size, shape, color, everything else. We get these ridiculous messages. And I've, been, you know, and I've taken them in. We've all taken those messages in. So I did all kinds of crazy things to get thin. But bodies do what bodies do. You write that you, you feel to some degree that the obsession with being thin or trying to... What did you say your mom always called her diets? Reducers or something? Yeah, that, that used to be called reducing. You, you, you write that you say they're, in a way, that's sort of anti-feminist. In a way. <laughs> the, whole, the whole point of dieting is for women to get smaller and take up less space. And it not, not coincidentally makes us weaker and smaller than men. It's, of course it's reducing. It's totally about that. And the, you know, I also came to really see that dieting is a really venal, greedy kind of thing to do. Uh, it, it requires a lot of time, a lot of preparation, special ingredients. You know, it, it, and it's something that most people don't have, don't have the leisure to do. So getting smaller turns out to be a class-based activity. <laughs> and I came to see it as being very strange, but I also found it very hard to leave behind. Once you, once you deform food and eating to do this, it really changes your relationship with food completely. And it's something that's very hard to forget. Well, what is your relationship with your weight like now? My relationship to my body is, is one of trying to be healthy. And now I'd say my primary experience is getting older. That the way I relate to my body has more to do with the fact that I'm turning 59 on Friday than how much I weigh. It has to do with the fact that you reach a certain age and there's an invisibility that, that surrounds you. You have the invisibility cloak you always wanted as a child hmm. when you don't really want it anymore. So I'm, I'm really experiencing that. And also the fact that things stop working as well as they used to. It's not just dieting. It's, it's everything from getting up off a cross-legged position on the floor to how much I can sleep at night. So I'm experiencing a changing body, and it can be an adventure or it can be scary. I think it's an adventure. What, what is the, the sort of... I'm asking because this is really something that I have spent far too much of my own time thinking about. When you're talking about your body image, did you come up with a mantra... How did you change your thinking from being obsessed with it, from being at the point where you would secretly take diet pills to being where you could just live inside your body? I do not think I've gotten there yet, but I'm definitely better. I think part of the mantra is, I'm so lucky. I feel very lucky. I'm pretty healthy. I can walk. I can see. I can hear. I feel really lucky. And that helps a lot if we can just appreciate the fact that our body is doing what it does. That helps a lot. Yeah. Um, the theme of this hour is, is uh-oh, and you have, you've talked to a lot of people and you've covered a lot of different things in this uh, country. I'm curious, do you think that 
the world is going to be a better or worse place in 50 years? Uh, yes. Well played, I, Tisdale. I, I, think, I think environmentally we're going to be in much worse shape. Hmm. I don't think there's much we can do to stop some of the changes that we see. Climate change is, is just barreling ahead. And even if we did everything right, we're not going to get anything to change in 50 years. But socially, we're seeing tremendous progress. I know it feels the other way. Sometimes it can get, especially when we say Fox News, it can seem really like the culture's falling apart. But if we look at civil rights and acceptance of people's lives, I think we're seeing a lot of change. And that's not just the United States. That's all around the world. So yes, I think we'll be in a better and a worse place. So we'll all be living underground, but we'll be nicer <laughs> to each other. I think so. Great. Well, that's good news. Sally Tisdale, everybody, right here on LiveWire. This is LiveWire Radio. This week's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, featuring high-quality meats that are free of antibiotics, added growth hormones, and animal byproducts in feed, because eating a hamburger shouldn't freak you out. More information at Whole Foods Market. Com. You're listening to Livewire from Public Radio International. This week, our theme is uh-oh. Of course, not all accidents have terrible outcomes. In fact, sometimes cool stuff gets discovered by accident. And uh, Jason Rouse, you've actually been looking into that this week, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most of the week. Uh, so you put together a little list of things that got uh, discovered purely by accident. Uh, and I have yeah. some of these things here. Yeah. Uh, apparently, chocolate chip cookies... Yeah, this was great. Um, uh, uh, a, a nice woman named Ruth Wakefield, who owned the Toll House Inn, she was um, trying to make chocolate cookies, ran out of baker's chocolate, so she just took some, some sort of semi-whatever chocolate, and she crushed it up. She threw it into the dough, thinking that when it baked, it would melt, and it didn't. It remained kind of chunk-like, chunk and so there you go, chocolate chip cookies. Toll House chocolate chip cookies. Toll House, fact. Wow. Um, what about cornflakes? Um, that was invented by the brothers Kellogg, uh, John and Will, and they were. This is gross. They were trying to, they were trying to make a pot of boiled grain. I I refuse to look that up. Yeah. I don't want to know what that is. I, it sounds I can't awful. believe there was a demand for that as a I, breakfast product. That sounds I th terrible. I think this was the, the world was tougher, a tougher place a hundred years ago, and so they put this pot of boiled grain on the stove. They forgot about it a couple days. Um, and they, it turned moldy and dry and thick, and so they just scraped off the mold, and what was left were these sort of flaky uh, cornflakes. So that, think about that, <laughs> healthy people, eating your cornflakes. They've just removed the mold and put it in a box. <laughs> Honey grams for me, thank you very much. Um, so that's how cornflakes were discovered? Yeah, yeah. What about, uh, you have, uh, and this is potato chips as well. Yeah, this is great. This was, this was uh, invented out of anger. Um, <laughs> there was, um, at a place called the Cary Moon Lake House in Saratoga Springs, uh, the chef there was a guy named George Crumb. And a, a patron had ordered a, a baked potato, but continually was sending it back, saying it wasn't done enough, it wasn't done enough. So finally, aggravated, Chef Crumb took it, sliced it as thin as he could, jammed it in the oven until it was as hard as a rock, served it to the guy. The guy ate it, loved it, continued ordering more, hence the potato chip. I noticed, Jason, that all of the examples that you've given are just 
food yeah. things. Were you yeah. just looking around your kitchen today for research? Is that how this Not happened? Not just, but yeah. Um, there's, there's, I gave you a whole list uh, right, of microwave okay. and x-rays. Yeah, and the last one here is not a food. It just says, uh, of, of uh-ohs that turned out great, announcer Jason Rouse. Yeah. Well, that, I was invented by two people called Bob and Janet. And what were they trying to make? If I'm honest, sweet, drunken love in the back of a Pontiac. But, <laughs> but you know... <laughs> Accidents will happen, and they made lemonade. Yay! So, yay it's Jason Ross, one of the great accidents of really, I think, this country's history. And we're going to get our next guest out here. Ijeoma Aluo is a Seattle based writer, speaker, and self described internet yeller. She's also editor at large of The Establishment, a news and opinion website run by women, which has recently been confused online with the more amorphous notion of the GOP establishment, <laughs> leading to no end of hilarious, misguided, angry tweets from Donald Trump supporters. <laughs> Please welcome Ijeoma Aluo back to Livewire. <laughs> Ijeoma, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I want to just read a Twitter exchange that your, uh, I guess it was your social media person at your website, The Establishment, recently had. So this was a tweet from a woman, I would say ironically named Joy, <laughs> who just tweeted at, at The Establishment, F you, and then linked to like a George Carlin routine about something. The response from your website was, and I quote, wow, Joy. Thanks. We're so lucky you tweet your Trump support at us every day. It's something special to look forward to. <laughs> Joy's response is, screw you. You're all corrupt. You make me sick. Trump's people know what you're doing, as do we the people. Ever heard of us? <laughs> to which your website, the establishment, replied, do you know how Twitter works? <laughs> you're yelling at a woman's magazine called The Establishment every day not the government. <laughs> and this was the part I did not expect. This was Joy's response. I'm really embarrassed. Please forgive the inconvenience. <laughs> so there's hope. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen yeah. on the internet in my life. That was, was that actually really good for you guys? Because I know that's a relatively new project, the establishment, the website. And this was a story that everybody was talking about, right? Yeah, um, it was everywhere. It was like, in, I think it was in New Yorker and BuzzFeed. And it was funny because this woman has been tweeting um, obscenities at us since January. And <laughs> every day, our social media manager goes, nah, I'm just going to ignore it. And then finally, this was the day where she was like, wait, does she really think we're the shadow government? <laughs> <laughs> and we have 7,000 followers and tweet about feminism all day? <laughs> it was just, she finally responded, and I'm so glad she did. Um, along with uh, your work at The Establishment, uh, you've also written for The Stranger and The Guardian and a bunch of other places. And one of the things that you've been associated with uh, in the last year or so is the conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement. And... Uh, other issues of, of inequality, wherever those might crop up. Do you consider yourself like the John the Baptist 
of the Northwest? Like, is it your job to make the people in power feel uncomfortable? You know, I think I was born making people in power feel uncomfortable. I think that for um, a lot of oppressed and disenfranchised people, just being yourself and living in yourself makes people uncomfortable. And, you know, whether that's our job, I would say, yeah, I would rather have a different job. <laughs> you know, I would rather um, people were really happy to see me and people in power were like, hey, Ijoma. Um, but as I exist, it makes people uncomfortable. And, you know, I've learned I can't be anything other than what I am. Uh, we're talking to Ijeoma Aluo, a writer in Seattle. Um, I, I hope that this question does not seem like I am being dismissive in any way, because I mean it genuinely. I've been reading the website a lot this week, and there was a point for me where I really started to feel a kind of a fatigue, because what I felt was there were a lot of pieces that were written about marginalized people, and then within the group that set up to try to help the marginalized people, it would then marginalize some people, and then those people would feel that it wasn't representing them. Is total inclusion for everybody in our world, is that something that could realistically even happen? I think it will always be a process. I think that a commitment to total inclusion is something that can happen, and I think that's the most we can ask for. We're all going to screw this up. I do on a regular basis. And it's really about deciding what you stand for and what you don't. And if you believe in equality and you believe in justice, um, then when you're confronted with your own shortcomings, you, you learn and it stings and it sucks. Um, but you know, just like I can't represent all of black America, there are uh, black people much more poor than I am in class plays a role. There are black people with disabilities that I don't have and that plays a role. And when I write and I talk and I forget that, I exclude people. And that reminder, while it stings, my commitment to continue to do better and recognize these things in myself is, I think, the most that we can hope for. And I do think that that is something that we as a society can work towards. The truth is there's always going to be people who are going to try and build divisions and are going to try and separate us because that's how power works. The structure of power is designed to function when we aren't investigating it. It is designed by the people at top to say, if people just go about their day, we get to stay on top. And it is our job to constantly figure out where that structure is tripping us up and commit to do better. Well, what is your kind of guiding star with some of this stuff? Uh, because I think there's a lot of people probably in our radio audience and maybe even here in Portland who, who want to do the right thing. But again, it feels like even when you are pursuing that really uh, in a really serious way, you can still be offending somebody or not taking somebody's experience into account. It feels paralyzing at some point. How do you move through this world, this very complex world of, of, of inclusion that you're trying to create at your website? And, and what are you telling yourself when you write something as far as your way of trying to not be hurtful, but also to make a point? You know, I'd say for me, it's just living my truth and always being willing to believe people. And I think especially as writers, uh, a lot of times we share our stories, but we don't actually listen to other people and believe them and believe what they're saying. And my, I feel like my job as a culture writer especially is to hear what people are telling me and listening to them and believing them and not trying to run it through my own filter. Um, I will get caught up in that. And there will be times, even at the establishment, I'm sure, where I will publish things and they will be wrong-headed. I will think they're right at the time, but they're not. And I've just got to believe people when they come to me and say, this is my truth and this is how what you did affected me. What if they're wrong, though? Like, what if somebody is, is they're, they're saying they feel something, they're saying they're offended by something, but 
but maybe there that's something going on for them. Like, how do you how do you figure out what is what? Because if you believe everybody who has a beef with anything, you'd also believe the trolls, right? Because they have a beef with you. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I guess my my general rule is if somebody with less privilege comes to me and says, hey, did you realize this? I'm going to go with my first instinct to think that it's something I'm missing Hmm. and not them. Now, that goes the opposite, too. Granted, there are people with more privilege on that particular subject. I'm going to be like, hey, chances are you're the one missing something, dude. And that's it, because we only have so much time in the day. Um, but it's it's an adjustment. It's something that we're always going to look at. We're never going to fully agree on. And that's why I think, most importantly, it's just your commitment to keep trying that matters. And it's your commitment to keep trying even when you screw up and it hurts and you feel awful. It feels awful to mess these things up. It really does. It's a horrible feeling because we all want to think of ourselves as good people. And we think that it's this collection of things that we do and, oh, I lost, you know, 10 points from Gryffindor because I screwed (laughs) this up. Um, And that's not how it works. You know, there is no really good or bad. We just continuously try. Um, Our theme this hour is uh uh-oh. Uh, you spend a lot of time really investigating ways that people, I think, could be better to each other. Do you think this is going to be a better or worse country in 50 years? I think it will be better. I do. Um, I spend a lot of time raising a lot of alarm bells. I'm raising them for my generation who hasn't figured it out because we're the ones building the structure and the work that the future generations are going to have to undo. But I've got a teenage son. And a lot of the stuff I spend all day yelling about, he's already got figured out, and he's just wondering what's taking us so long. And that, you know, I feel like it's our job to build the structure so that it's easier for them. But they already have it figured out. You know, my, my kids' friends, they're not debating about whether or not black lives matter. They know they do. We're the ones debating it because we haven't figured it out yet. But unfortunately, we're also the ones building the structure that they're going to have to battle when they grow up. So they're going to have some work to do. They're going to have a lot to tear down, just like we're tearing down from previous years. Uh, But I see so much hope in how fierce uh, the younger generation is and how willing to fight, not just for basic rights, but for the best life possible for them and everyone they know. Do you think you're ever going to get joy the lady who's been tweeting at you on board? (laughs) You know, I'm thinking maybe she, you know, people do come around. We have, my family's from Kansas, Wichita, Kansas, and from Enid, Oklahoma. Um, Noted hotbeds of liberalism. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But let me tell you, enough people um, end up with brown babies in your family, and suddenly the way that you look at things, (laughs) like... (laughs) Like, police brutality starts to change. And Now, granted, please, for the love of God, don't go out there tweeting people saying, oh, we just need to miscegenate our way into uh, racial equality because that's insulting. Um, it'll change. I don't even know if I understand about 40% of that last <laughs> statement. So I'll probably just leave it alone on Twitter. Maybe that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, yeah just leave it alone. The truth is, is that it changes. A lot of this is exposure. I think that the ability, you know, for people to stay isolated... Um, and think that these issues don't matter to them. We vote according to the issues that matter to us. So Joy is voting according to what matters to her based on who she knows, who she sits with, and who she has to face the morning after the election. That will change. And then her opinions will change. All right. Well, I look forward to that day. Ijeoma Aluo, thanks for coming on LiveWire.
Our musical guest this hour grew up right here in Portland, Oregon, the middle of five kids raised around gospel music. She's been building a following with her soulful R&B-influenced tunes that still pay respect to her spiritual roots. And she's heading out on a national tour this summer, but not before hanging out with us and playing some music. Please welcome the wonderful Liz Weiss to Livewire. All right, Liz, what are we going to hear? Pure Religion. It's from my album entitled There's a Light. How ready does the crowd need to be to back you slash clap? Just don't concentrate too much on the clapping. Just feel it. You either got it or you don't. And if you don't have it, look at your neighbor who does and follow them. Thank you. You're gonna need that pure religion. Hallelujah. Gonna need that pure religion. Hallelujah. You're gonna need that pure religion. Pure religion gonna carry you through. You're gonna need that pure religion. Hallelujah. It's okay, you guys can clap if you would like to. I know I just made you guys more nervous. You're gonna need that pure religion, hallelujah. Gonna need that pure religion, hallelujah. You're gonna need that pure religion, pure religion, gonna get you through. You're gonna need that pure religion, hallelujah. Now give our mother, don't you mourn, hallelujah. Give our mother, don't you mourn, hallelujah. This is Livewire Radio. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines with 80 non-stops from Seattle and now to New York's Kennedy Airport. Now the city that never sleeps. 
is just a nap away. Alaska Airlines keeping you connected nonstop. More information at alaskaair.com. Our theme this hour is, uh-oh, why did we choose that theme? Well, because all week we've been reading the work of Paolo Bacigalupi. Paolo writes about the near future in his books, a near future that is not exactly great for us humans, usually due to our stupid decisions regarding natural resources. His debut book, The Wind-Up Girl, was named a top 10 book by Time Magazine. His latest book, The Water Knife, has been receiving rave reviews as well. Please welcome the surprisingly chipper, based on the content of his books, Paolo Bacigalupi, here to Livewire. Paolo, welcome to Livewire. For those who may not be familiar, kind of take us into the world of your new book, The Water Knife. Uh, what year is it set in and what is going on, particularly in the Southwest? Okay, so this is a near future uh, story. I never actually define the exact year because I don't want the George Orwell sort of 1984 problem where you immediately become obsolete. But uh, this is a story of climate change and drought, and it's all about the cities of Las Vegas and Phoenix fighting over dwindling supplies of the Colorado River. It was based on the sort of climate data that we're looking at that says that the Southwest is going to get hotter and drier in the future. And the fact that the Colorado River is already an oversubscribed river. Seven states all depend on the water, and there isn't enough to go around already. How did you get interested in this topic? Like, how did it occur to you to be a thing to write a near-future novel about? Uh, the, the thing that really made me think that I absolutely had to write this particular book, a lot of times you're trying to find what's worth writing about or what's, gonna, what's worth spending a couple of years of your life dumping words on a page for... Uh, um, uh, it was. Uh, I was down in. That's Texas. a beautiful way to describe well, writing. It's. It's like once you're. Once you, you have a real start, way with words. Once Paolo. you start the book, you're trapped in the thing, and you can't get out. And and so you sort of want to look, and you're just like, is that the bear trap I want to stick my hand into? I don't know. Like and, um, but the, for me, this one really kicked off because I was down in Texas in 2011, down there during their drought. And it was terrible. It was, it was extraordinary, the kinds of impacts that they were seeing. Their crops were failing. Cattle were having to be put down because the land couldn't support them. They were having record numbers of 100-degree days. There, was, there were rolling brownouts because they didn't have enough water in their reservoirs to get enough uh, head for the uh, hydroelectric generation. So at the same time as they were having... Um, you know, needing to use their air conditioners the most because of the heat, uh, they didn't actually have enough electricity in the grid. And so there were all these really weird things going on. Um, but the scary thing about it was that their drought matches very closely to what future Texas should look like according to climate data. And so in that moment, you're like, oh, I'm time traveling here. This is not, this is not a drought. This is a chance to whoop, jump into the future. And and what does the future look like? And the answer is the future looks kind of scary. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the thing that kicked me off, though, really was that Rick Perry, um, during that 2011 drought, was uh, going around and holding prayer circles and praying for rain. And you know, when you think about the future, you say, oh, gee, if the data says the future looks grim and our leadership is engaged in magical thinking, that's the moment <laughs> when you think, oh, I need to write a book about this. And, <laughs> And it's entirely that story of like, well, if we plan, we survive, and if we engage in magical thinking, we are toast. <laughs> We're talking to Paolo Bacigalupi. His uh, new book is The Water Knife. Are you writing books like uh, the ones you write and, and your latest, The Water Knife, because you want to write a kind of gripping story or because you want to try to actually get people to change their behavior 
in the real world of 2016. No, no, I'm looking for a win-win. You know, I want to, I want to entertain myself. I want to talk about my values. I, I want to make money. Um, I want it all. Uh, I, I'm, I assume the money is just to hoard water. Oh yeah, absolutely. Can. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Water, food. Just you ten know, swimming pools in your backyard. A couple full. of different pieces of land in yeah. different countries, so that like you know, yeah. I have a choice depending on where climate change goes worst. I can migrate. Yeah. Um, but um, honestly, you don't see these things as necessarily mutually exclusive. Like you can be no, concerned about no. the world, and you can also be. Uh, in essence, a, uh, a person making a living by writing these books. Right. Well, and, and, and ideally, like, I mean, if I want to talk about, you know, if I want to talk about climate change, if I want to create a context for us to be more concerned or engaged about climate change, then, then in fact, my goal has to be to be read by as many people as possible, which means absolutely I'm going to write this as a thriller. Absolutely I'm going to try to create interesting, engaging, twisted characters for you to follow through to the, to the end. You know, that's, that's part and parcel of the whole objective, really. I want to talk to you a little bit more about your career as a writer because you kind of uh, started off with a bang. Uh, we got to take mm -hmm. a quick break, though, on Livewire. We have Paolo Bacigalupi here. His latest book is The Water Knife. We will be back with more in just a moment. Stay there. That Liz Vice. Oh, my goodness gracious. I'll tell you what. This was a really fun show, even though, by the way, this is Luke back in Tampa. This was a fun show, even though the theme was a little ominous seeming, uh, the theme being uh-oh. Uh, it ended up actually being a wonderful time for uh, for all of us there, for the people that were at Mississippi Studios, and hopefully for you out there in uh, podcast land. Hey, if you uh, would like to hear Livewire on your local public radio station, uh, there's a really easy way to make that happen, and that is to give them a call if they're not playing it and tell them, hey, there is a new exciting journey that awaits you. Wait, I'm just reading the, I'm just reading the card here on this desk from the Hyatt <laughs> Frequent Stayer Club. Don't tell them that. That won't even make any sense. Tell them that uh, there is a great, uh, you think anyway, a public radio variety show. It's called Livewire, and that they should maybe put it on their station. That does us a lot of good. Also, if you go over to iTunes uh, and you and you like the podcast and you 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 give us a um, a review, a rating. We're not telling you how to review us or at what level of stars to rate us. Let your heart be your guide on that. But. It uh, helps us in the iTunes rankings, too, which is good for us because it lets more people know about the show. So those are a couple of ways you can help out. There's one more way, and this is super important, and that is if you could go to LiveWireRadio.org and if you could consider joining our League of Extraordinary Listeners. Uh, this is where you make a small monthly donation, whatever feels okay to you, to LiveWire, and then we use that small monthly donation to keep making this independent radio show. We're distributed by Public Radio International, which is really cool. Uh, we've got some great stations we're on, which we really appreciate. But when it comes down to it, we and you out there in listener land are the way that Livewire is financially able to do this every year. Uh, it's us getting on the podcast and asking you to help support us. Uh, and it's our fine sponsors. It takes a lot of different things to make this radio show happen every year. And if you have been enjoying the podcast and you would like to help uh, make sure it keeps going, go to livewireradio.org, join our League of Extraordinary Listeners. For uh, 10 bucks a month, we'll mail you a tote bag, a really cool Livewire tote bag. I use it myself. It's actually a totes bag. It zips up. It's very cool. Uh, we'll send you some coffee, a T-shirt. There's all kinds of stuff that we would be happy to send your way as a thank you for supporting Livewire. And we'd like to say thanks to these current members. These are people who are donating to Livewire, and are a big part of why you're able to hear this little episode of our radio show now in the form of a podcast. And those are Kyle Humphrey, 
Samantha Hargrove, and Emily Jones. Kyle, Samantha, and Emily, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the radio show. We got a chat with Paolo Bacigalupi coming up. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. We have Paolo Bacigalupi here. Uh, Paolo is a, a writer and uh, has a book out called The Water Knife, which looks at a near future in this country where uh, the, the Colorado River has, uh, has lost a lot of its uh, potency. But they talk about the Colorado River like it's having historic lows a lot of the time, and yet, and you probably learned this in your research, when they look at some of the indications, the Colorado River may have been at historic highs for a while, right? And it is returning to the average, right? right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting is that when they, when they allocated water on the Colorado River, they, they used a whole set of data that turns out it was an extremely wet period. And so there are estimates about how much water was likely available in the water system, how much snow was falling in the mountains, and then uh, flooding down all the way. I mean, this is a river that goes all the way from the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Pacific Ocean, a thousand more miles. Um, and they miscalculated right from the start how much they thought was there. And so then when they were saying, oh, well, this state gets, you know, 4 million acre feet and that state only gets 300,000 acre feet or whatever, all of their estimates were wrong about how much water was really going to be there. Um, so, yeah, we were already needing to go back to average. And then climate change piles on top of that and says, oh, it could be even worse. Well, let's talk about a happier topic for a minute. Your first book, <laughs> your first book, The Wind Up Girl, was a huge hit. And mm. uh were you expecting that? I mean, was that within your wildest dreams? What were your expectations? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, no, that book was rejected by every single major New York publishing house. And they had very good reasons. I think one of the things that's interesting about book publishing is that nobody quite knows why books really succeed or fail. Um, there is a, an element of gambling to every book going out in the world. And it's terrifying to realize that because you're putting all your creativity into this thing, years of your life, and then... Who knows? Um, in this particular case, uh, it was rejected by every single major uh, publishing house, and I ended up getting published by Nightshade Books in San Francisco, which is literally two really crazy, passionate dudes who love science fiction, who lived in a house and like you know did this as a hobby. And they were like, "We like your book." <laughs> and uh, I was like, "Well, nobody else does." It was published by so Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> it was uh, uh, sort of a, a zoot-suited um, science fiction fan and an ex-marine actually, were the two who, who published it. I assume that's also the plot of your next book. Right. No, they, they, that's, they, they were, they were you couldn't make that themselves. up. They were awesome. They were awesome in many ways. And they didn't even expect it to do well. Um, they were like, we love this book, but we're going to try not to lose our shirts on it. Um, and, and so none of us were in any way anticipating an actual success. Uh, in fact, at the point when I remember this moment when I had gone uh, online to look at my um, Amazon sales ranks because it's a sickness. <laughs> um, um, and, and I saw that the book was sold out, that they didn't have any in stock. And I, I called up Jeremy because I could, um, because you're, when your publisher is two dudes in a house, you could call them on their home number. Um, and I called up Jeremy and I was like, I think this is, I think we sold out. Did we sell out? And he's like, no, silly author. Um, basically, all of your books have gone out to bookstores. They will soon be returned because nobody will buy them. And then we will send them out to other bookstores where they will again be returned because no one will buy them. And we'll keep doing that for a while. If you're very lucky, maybe this book will sell out in, you know, a year, um, the first print run. And, um, if you're, if you're extremely lucky and, uh, and, and two weeks later, though, he calls me up and he says, it turns out the book sold out. 
<laughs> and he says, we're reprinting more. And, uh, and then he calls me up uh, two weeks after that, and he says, we're printing more again. And, and it took us a long time to kind of get a handle on the idea that the book kept selling. What do you think is going to happen with this water situation in, in real life? In real life, what do I think? Um, well, we, we, the water knife is basically that scenario that says we, we don't plan and we decide not to cooperate with one another. Um, there are other versions of, you know, we have options. Um, if we're clever monkeys, if we decide to work together, if we decide to link arms on either side of us, there's a lot we can accomplish. Um, so you don't I, think it's, it's unfixable, the, the no, water issues? I, I, well, I mean, none of our problems really are. But I think that the, one of the things that comes up a lot, especially in science fiction, is we keep hunting around for that quick techno fix that'll sort of bail us out of the problem. Like, oh, you know, maybe we can geoengineer our way out or something, as opposed to dealing with the messy problems of politics or the messy problems of our society not making a whole lot of sense in terms of the way it prices carbon, for example. Um, you know, we have simple so solutions for, for um, climate change, which is we could tax carbon. Um, this is a simple market-based solution. You make something expensive, and then, and then people try to do something else that's cheaper. And so you make the bad things expensive and the good things cheaper. It's like, OK. And then you unleash the innovation of the markets. Um, and yet we don't do it, and we haven't done it for the last 30 years. And so that's the point where I start to worry is that we have these other venal and short-sighted interests that will really get in and actively try to muck up the system. And you saw that with like ExxonMobil, their climate scientists already knew about global warming. You know, this is like sort of well documented at this point. And they, then they spent a whole bunch of time obscuring the information for everybody else. Um, and right now in Arizona, a, a place which is already vulnerable to drought, there is a, uh, there's currently a bill that's working its way through the legislature where they want to undo some of their groundwater protection rules. Um, and right now, they're required to prove any new subdivision is required to have, I mean, I'm sorry, this is really geeky stuff, but. Um, it, but this is the, the problem is is like you're writing these stories and it's all about these geeky little details that have huge impacts and and this particular one is that a, a new subdivision any new development has to prove that it has a hundred year water supply that's the current law of the land there but now this major developer is trying to undo that law of the land and you're like wait a second like these guys want to build a whole bunch of houses and they don't care whether or not these things survive for another 20 years or 50 years they just want to make their buck and get out and so i think that's where we have problems and you know are we going to be that enlightened society that sort of looks around in this long plans for the long term or are we going to get these really short term interest groups who dive in and reap their profits and wreck the planet and hand off the cost to our children that is detailed stuff, Paolo, but <laughs> the good news is anyone who listened to this interview just got community college credit. Right, I know. It's, Four it's so credits. horrible, right? Yeah, In yeah. water management, <laughs> thanks to Paolo Bacigalupi, right here on LiveWire. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you. This week's show is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. Spring has sprung, and that means drinking light, refreshing beer and taking spontaneous weekend trips. Now there's a beer that combines both of those things. Side Trip is a quaffable Belgian-style ale that's perfect for the side trips you'll take this spring. Find out more at newbelgium.com. <laughs> All right, let's talk about who helped make this show happen. Thanks to our guests, Sally Tisdale, Ijioma Aluo, Paolo Bacigalupi, 
and Liz Weiss. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Hatton is our producer and editor. Our announcer and our writer is Jason Rouse. Our house band this week was Johan Wagner and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Elia Unverzat is our backstage coordinator. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix by Sean Flora. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Feel better, Lauren. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust and the Regional Arts and Culture Council. To find out more about our show and how to become a member, go to livewireradio.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Hey, it's Luke in Tampa again. Listen, that thing I said about getting community college credit, I didn't run that by any kind of um, educational board or group of provosts. Does anybody know what a provost actually does? Anyway, I don't know if you can legally get community college credit for listening to that interview. I do think it was interesting, though. I think we all know a little more having listened to it than we did before we tuned into this episode of Livewire, which, by the way, the theme has been, uh-oh. Uh, coming up in a minute, we're going to have a chat with Liz Weiss and a second song from her that we couldn't actually fit into the radio broadcast. It's one of the cool things about the Livewire podcast, friendos. You get the bonus material. Someday, we may just do like a six-hour show. It would make our executive producer, Robin Tenenbaum, crazy, but that would be probably the main appeal to me um, because... Uh, <laughs> Sometimes she says, all right, Burbank, I like that you're doing this new, uh, you know, highly personal version of the podcast. But like at some point you got to get to the point and you got to like wrap it up, which uh, is not really my strong suit. So here I am in a hotel room in Tampa, just talking to all of you out there in the Livewire podcast world. Hey, if you are out there in the Livewire podcast world and you would like to get in touch with me and maybe have your email read on the show, shoot me a note. Why don't you? Hey, Luke at LivewireRadio.org. Or you can call us and leave a voicemail, 803-597-2346. A listener, Carrie Mallon, uh, said, uh, how about come back when your batteries are charged or come back when your batteries need recharging? Here's what Carrie's talking about. I said, uh, this is now going to be the third Livewire podcast uh, that we've done this way. Um, and at uh, the first uh, one, I said, I need like a catchy catchphrase at the end of the show. I need something to say. And uh, so I'd like to get your suggestions. I already gave the email address, but uh, if you have an idea of how I should end the show, end the podcast, that is, uh, send it along. Carrie's a suggestion. Come back when your batteries need recharging. A little wordy, Carrie. I mean, I appreciate the suggestion. I just don't know if I'll be able to remember that. How about come back when your batteries are charged? Conceptually, I have a problem with that because if you – well, it gets into this question of what are we trying to do? Are, we're a live wire. Are we recharging your batteries? Like are your batteries empty when you tune into the show and then they're charged at the end, or are you, as the listeners and participants in the show, are you part of the energy charge so you need to show up with charged batteries? I don't know. we got more questions than answers at this point, Carrie, but uh, I do appreciate you um, emailing us. Oh, and Carrie added, why did you make that poor woman chant Innskeep, Innskeep? That was a lousy heckle. <laughs> if you missed our all-stand-up comedy show that we did last week, 
we had uh, some some of our favorite comedians come on, and then at the end of the chat, we a couple of times we had we had them uh, try to see how they would handle a public radio style heckling, and so we got actual members of our audience who didn't know they were going to have to do this, and then we just had them like give a real public radio style heckling, and one of the women uh, just had to chant Innskeep over and over again, although. I'm not sure that she knew what a Steve Inskeep is. So her chanting of Inskeep was, it was, uh, I think it was a little confusing for everybody. Um, the listener, Carrie says, uh, that was a lousy heckle. That couldn't even knock the Nina out of my Totenberg. I don't want to spend too long thinking about that, what the implications of that are. I mean, your mother wears Birkenstocks for crying out loud. Mostly, though, great show. Uh, Sign listener, Carrie. Uh, listener Joanne said, uh, hey, Luke, I'm loving the new sound of the Livewire podcast. I can't get a radio signal out here on our farm. So even if you were broadcasting on New Zealand national radio, whoa, listener Joanne is in New Zealand. Uh, even if you were broadcasting on New Zealand national radio, I'd have to connect with you via the power of the interwebs. I love feeling I'm getting a backstage peek into the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Signed, listener Joe in New Zealand. Oh, and says, P.S., thanks for introducing me to Aaron Jones. My drive into town tomorrow just got a lot more tolerable. Yeah, if you didn't catch uh, the stand-up show uh, in the radio or the podcast form, I highly recommend you go back, if for no other reason than to hear Aaron Jones. Man, that guy is incredible. You're going to be hearing more about Aaron Jones. He's in a band called Aaron Jones and the Way. Uh, he's getting pretty big in the Northwest, but I think you're going to hear more out of this guy in the coming years because he is a really, really rare talent. Um, let's see here. Also, we have some people checking in from different parts of the globe. Uh, listener Japheth. Japheth, that's a biblical name, right? Was that one of, I feel like that was one of Noah's sons in the Bible. Ham and Japheth, right? Were those the names of Noah's sons? Anyway, Japheth McKinney says, hello from BFE. I love listening to the show from New Brunswick, Canada. I don't think New Brunswick is BFE. I've heard of New Brunswick. Um, we're going to be getting an avalanche of emails, by the way, at hey, <coughs> excuse me, hey Luke at livewireradio.org. An avalanche of emails of people saying, uh, number one, you're totally wrong about the Bible, which is possible. Do you know I won a Bible bowl when I was a kid, though? I grew up in a very religious home, and I, had, I got this uh, picture Bible when I was a kid, which was the whole Bible in cartoon panels. Not like funny cartoons, like just, you know, comics, I guess, but, but serious comics. And I read that thing cover to cover. Now, granted, it's a highly abridged version of the Bible. They can't include everything in, but man, it gave me a pretty good working knowledge of, uh, of, of a lot of the, uh, you know, characters in the Bible. And then there was this thing called the junior high convention in Longview, Washington, that I went to when I was in eighth grade. And it was all the local Christian schools got together to do feats of athleticism and uh, monologues. I did a monologue of Casey at the bat, which was not successful. Uh, but then it came time for the Bible bowl. This was like the big trivia contest. And we just pwned everybody. We, the kids from North Seattle Christian, thanks to one Luke Burbank, thanks to his picture Bible. Anyway, I could be wrong though about Japheth. Um, also Julie Greenhall, Julie Greenhall. I think I'm going to just leave the G and the H out at the end of her name. Take a Wild guess. Uh, Luke, hello from Rescue, California. Rescue, California. Where in the heck is Rescue, California? Uh, she says, I love listening to Livewire. It's very entertaining. Keep it coming. Signed, uh, Juliana. 
So, um, so those are some listeners checking in. Again, uh, if you want to email us, uh, you certainly can. It's heyluke at livewireradio.org. Or if you want to give us a phone call and leave us a message like this guy did, this guy named Bobby, it's 803-LW-RADIO, 803-597-2346. Take a listen to this. Hi, this, uh, this is Bobby in Boston, a uh, long time, first time. Uh, good, to, good to hear you guys. I'm calling with a 2010 Toyota Yaris. It's a standard transmission. Uh, and I had the whole thing overhauled about uh, 10,000 miles ago. Uh, ever since I got it back from the from the transmission shop, uh, I get a sort of a noise from under the hood, uh, chattering, uh, squeaky chattering noise. Gets worse when it's colder. And uh, I'm hoping you guys can give me some uh, advice. Uh, transmission was done out of town, so taking it back to the place would be hard. You know. Hoping to get it all worked out, because boy, is it annoying the wife. So, uh, uh, thanks for staying on the air and doing what you do, and uh, uh, keep up the good work. I think Bobby, I think Bobby might have been meaning to leave that message for a different public radio show that you hear on the weekends, because I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing on the car tip. Here's what. Here, this is my advice for any and all car problems: just run the heat. This is why. When I was a, a youngster. Uh, I was in college and I had a series of what we would call in the Northwest stone cold beaters, just real, <laughs> real S boxes of cars, including a Hyundai Excel that I bought with, I don't know, it had like 130,000 miles on it when I bought it, which was not good. Like that was about 120,000 miles past the due date on that car. Um, or the expiration date, I guess I would say. But so immediately things started breaking. What I would have to do to keep the car from overheating is uh, in the summertime is I'd have to blast the heat because the heat on a car is is really just heat from the engine. You're just getting it off of the engine. And so I remember my daughter was like three at the time or something. Maybe, actually, she's probably older. If I was in my early 20s, she's probably like six or seven. But she'd be sitting there in the front seat and we'd just be sitting in like terrible traffic. It's blazing hot outside and I am blasting the heat. And I remember... She had little sweat beads on her nose, kind of like, you know when kids, when they nap, they get those little beads of sweat on It's very adorable. Well, she had angry beads of sweat on her nose. I remember her looking over at me and just saying, Daddy, why do we have the heat on? And I didn't have a good answer for her. I think the answer should have been because I decided to have you at 17, and I'm still a child myself, and I do not have my ass together. But someday, someday we will have a car where we don't have to blast the heat at all times. And that day, uh, that day finally has come, I'm very proud to say. So that's not really useful car information, but it is a weird trip into my um, early 20s and fatherdom, for what that's worth. Um, please give us a ring. I want to. I'd love to get some good voicemails rolling that are actually intended for this show. Uh, give us a call. It's 803-LW Radio. All right, that is just about going to wrap it up for us this week. Um, I got to find somewhere to eat here in Tampa. This hotel I'm staying in is like. This is Florida, right? So I just, everything is like 20 miles from everything else. I don't have a rental car. I may be eating at the gas station that I saw as the cab was dropping me off. It's very possible. Anyway, I got to get to that. You've got to get to whatever you're doing. We're going to play one more thing for you. It's a chat, a brief chat with our friend Liz Weiss, amazing musician, and then a second song that she performed that was just like incredible that we couldn't fit into the radio show. So uh, enjoy that. Enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, we'll be back here about this same time next week with the Live Wire podcast. Until then, 
don't drive like my brother and come back with your batteries fully charged or empty or whatever it is you decide to do. See ya. Hello. I, um, I read on your website that your mom used to wake you up in the morning with the same song that my mom used to wake me up with, which was, Arise and shine and give God the glory, glory, rise and shine. And I hate that song so much. She tickles my feet, and I'm like, no. Was there an email that went out between the moms that that was know, the wake-up song? I've people say they, their mom sang that song as well. If the idea was to uh, put me in a sort of Christian frame of mind at the beginning yeah. of the day, it did not work. No, you're like, Scrooge. It's a terrible association. Oh, yeah. You're like, ugh, death. Um, <laughs> what a... Uh, what was the musical scene like in your household growing up or in, in your, you know, sort of social environment? That will be a novel one day. But, uh, yeah, my mom, she moved up from L.A. and she wanted to be a blues singer and my dad was in a band and she just needed to leave that lifestyle. So slowly singing became less and less as she was raising five kids on her own. And I just, as a child when I needed my alone time, I would just go in the basement and listen to music for hours and hours and hours. What kind of stuff? I mean, like uh, movie soundtracks, uh, Lion King, Aladdin, Pocahontas. <laughs> you got your Evita, isn't yeah, that? Yeah, those Madonna. are some quality jams. You got some uh, Yentl. Oh, Barbara Streisand. some Babs. Yeah, I listened to James Ingram, you know, Bette Midler. You yeah. would really be blowing some stereotypes up if you closed the right? show with Papa, Can You Hear Me? Papa, Can You Hear Me? <laughs> oh, yeah. That you was should my consider jam. that. What are we going to hear? What are we going to hear now from you? Well, this is a song that I wrote when I first started doing music where I realized, I mean, I've only been doing it for two years and it was nerve wracking and it's very vulnerable. And I realized that I was getting in my way to see what was actually inside of me, to see that. Maybe I did have a gift of singing. Maybe I did have a gift of music. And so I was just like, save me from myself. Save me from my thoughts. Save me from tormenting myself. Putting myself down saying, I'm not good enough. I'm too small. Who am I to do such a thing? And it's a way that I get to invite the audience in to be vulnerable with me. What's the song called? It's called Save Me. All right. It's really simple. This is Liz Vice on Livewire. <laughs> So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you guys to stand up if you're able. I just don't want, yeah, just stand up if you can. We're going to get vulnerable together. Is that okay? Yeah. I don't know if this is going to ruin the dynamics of sitting in to a podcast. No one can see us. So you guys, you notice there's only two of us. I might need some clapping. Just follow the tambourine. Oh 
enemies lies Which way do we go but onward soldier no leave inside So like a storm I'm moving forward like an eagle and fly you save me from myself oh please relieve me from my own hell why don't you save me from myself oh please relieve me that you are standing next to because we live in a society that creates fear of our neighbor and we need to come together to make some changes so we're going to do that today i need more singing you guys are kind of bashful okay save me from myself why don't you save me from my own head Sing that for me. Why don't you save me from myself? Oh, please relieve me from my own hell. Why don't you save me? 